And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So for those of you that follow my other creative projects, you will know how easy it is to push me down the apocalypse rabbit hole, whether it's the zombie apocalypse or robots taking over the world or mushrooms invading our brains. I believe that humanity's time on this earth is going to be short and the doomsday clock is almost at the stroke of midnight. There are many ways that the world has ended in the past and many possible ways for it to end in the future. And there's one man who has chronicled those ways, and that is Daryl Perkins, who wrote a book called The End Is At Hand, which discusses all the stories and all the funny predictions and uh, some of the funny stuff and some of the serious stuff uh, that can happen when one is investigating the end of the world. I should also mention that he did his own artwork, which is extraordinarily beautiful and really brings home all of these stories. Uh, So we're going to get into all that. Uh, So Daryl, Thank you so much for being on the show today. And one question I have, do you identify as an artist, first and foremost, a a visual artist? Yeah, that's how this all started. It was more about creating art on the subject of the end of the world. And the book happened kind of just naturally and organically because the stories just got deeper and lengthier and more fleshed out. uh, And I became as interested in the stories as I was. Uh, the the art to go with it. So that's why there's like this 50-50 split. But now I really like writing. So it was a nice surprise. That's great. Well, yeah, I mean, it is a 50-50 split because I mean, like, you know, for the dum-dums out there, I mean, this is essentially like a picture book, right? Like, I don't want to say it's a kid's book, but you got, you know, you got got text, you got heady text on one side and you got beautiful art on the other side. Yeah, at some point in history, you know, uh, because if you look at old text, there were beautiful illustrations to go along with it, even in adult books. And and at some point, we we just got too serious and said, no, illustrations are just for children, which is crazy. I think uh, lots of books could benefit from illustration. Uh, and, And mine, I try to make them work together in a way that they kind of rely on each other to tell the story. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, I you know, I I might disagree a little bit. Look, first of all, we got to talk about your your book here. I mean, you are an artist. We're going to talk about your art because I want to get into that. But you wrote a book called The End Is at Hand, which is uh, uh, I would call it, you know, maybe um, it's about the apocalypse. You know, your love letter to annihilation, uh, you know, is kind of kind of how I see it, uh, you know. And well, speaking of annihilation, uh, you moved to the Middle East. I mean, you're from Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, you, I think you went to school in, in England and then you moved to the Middle East. What, um, what's going on there? So is it a death wish? Is that the reoccurring theme in, uh, <laughs> in your life? No, I, I would say it's, it's pretty, well, I'm in Dubai. It's pretty safe here. For now. So I, I don't, you know, I don't have fears of the end of the wall or the world here. Uh, I mean, it's as likely here as anywhere and certainly, uh, back home in Providence, you know, same, same issues. Um, same issues? Yeah, you think but, the same issues? <laughs> Providence, uh, Rhode Island, I mean, yeah, and the Middle East, similar, issues. identical? Well, yeah, I mean, I, well, I don't know. <laughs> U.S. and UAE are, are all embroiled in yeah. uh, what's going on in the Middle fair East enough. now. Fair so enough. it all, yeah. All right. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I just had a friend who moved to uh, UAE. So, uh, you know, she's a, a neighbor, I guess, uh, which is kind of crazy. Do they like uh, it? Uh, you know, um, well, she moved there because her husband moved there. And so um, like is probably a strong word when you are forced to move yeah. out of your country and away from your family. Um, but I think she's going to survive the situation. Yeah. <laughs> that, that means anything. Survive. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Survive. <laughs> and survival, you know, that's a theme what we're talking about. It's not a strong love for the place. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Well, you know, and so this is kind of interesting because I looked at your art. I mean, beautiful art you have, right? I mean, it's, you. Uh, you do, um, is Linocut, is that the 
the name of the art that you yeah. do? Okay. And basically, if I understand it, I'm going to give the um, the picture version. You give me the text version. Uh, the picture version is you basically make a sketch on, you know, not a piece of wood, but um, a piece of plastic that you then carve out your image in reverse. Like the it has to be the uh, the mirror image because then you ink it and then you stamp it. And that's kind of that's kind of what you do, right? Is that close? Is that good? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's exactly right. It's uh, it's linoleum. It's the same stuff we tile our kitchen floors with, and uh, it happens to be a really consistent uh, surface that's really good for carving and stays really flat. Uh, and that ink goes on top, and uh, that reversal that you're talking about is sort of what makes it a unique art form. And that instead of just adding a black line of ink onto a white surface of paper, mm -hmm. you're carving away the white so what remains is the black so it gets this different uh physical uh appearance and different quality to a carved mark instead of a drawn mark yeah it's great because i mean in some ways it's sculpture you know so um mm. it's sculpture and it has this funny because i was watching some of the video i'm going to put some of the videos online i found your youtube page which i'll link to and you've got some great time lapse photograph not only of you stamp of creating the stamp but also the the whole artistic process and it's interesting because you know the 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 carving of it is what makes it the art right because when you look at it it's just a stamp mm. I collect national park stamps yeah. across, and I don't mean I'm not trying to reduce what you do to a to a stamp, but but uh, but you know the you can repeat it right, like you couldn't take Van Gogh's Starry Night and like take a wet piece of canvas and just stick it up against you know that image yeah. and then have an exact copy for your own, you know, um, yeah. which in some ways makes so it's a unique image because it's oil painting, but yours the art actually comes beforehand. It's almost like the stamp is the art itself and the image of it is just the mark that it leaves that's completely repeatable and identical every single one's identical yeah um uh, yeah all of all of that is correct i mean you could spend 100 hours on a painting and you have exactly one of those but what yeah. makes printmaking such a such a, a great uh, technique is that that reproducibility that you're talking about that you can make more and that's why it's a uniquely communal uh, uh, art form and it's great for illustrations. It's great for you know traditional bookmaking. Um, uh, so it's yeah, it's a traditional art form. Um, but also every you know I'd have to say every print is a little bit different. It mm -hmm. picks up different bits of uh, ink in different areas, and they're all going to be unique with a physical handmade touch, but that's a minor thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it isn't though, really, because as I was saying, as I cut my, I cut myself off. So that tells you where, what I do. Um, as I collect national park stamps and, you know, these are rubber stamps that you ink and then you press onto, you know, a notebook looks like a passport stamp from, you know, like from a real passport, except they're for national parks or other you know, stamps across the country I collect. But each one is unique. You know, how hard you press, yeah, you know, sometimes great. you smash them, yeah. right? Like I and I have to rewrite the words and every yeah, yeah. single stamp has its own unique story, which I, I, what I think is so cool because, you know, the way I described it makes it seem like it's not art. But in a weird way, like you said, everything's unique. But also, if you want that image, you can have it. Like, do you sell your prints? Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, like, so all the prints from the book, you've got, you know, what, uh, 84 of them or something like that or 50? Yeah, I've got I've got a. I've got a stack of them uh, and they're, you know, they're variations and, you know, there's one of those that gets yeah. scanned and turned into the one that's used in the book. So, right. so um, you know, there's like the one and then, yeah. you know, all of the artist proofs <laughs> and the practice ones that all the mess ups. But yeah, I mean, yeah. you get them and yeah, like you said, it's, it's art, but it's also traditional and utilitarian, right? There's yeah. function to it. So yeah. whether it's stamps on your passport or the stamps that you get from a national park book or, um, you know, even like sign painted stencils that are used for government purposes There's all mm -hmm. these like utilitarian purposes to make prints that yeah. are like physical and their craft as much as they are fine art. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, and, and on this show for people listening, I did a whole episode on old printing presses. And I did an episode on what, the guy who did the Church of Type who took these old printing presses and he creates art with it. You know, he was here in L.A. and he moved to, I think, Tennessee. And uh, so there's art. You, so not only can is there the utilitarian printing press that makes newspapers and pictures and all that, but then there's people who do art with existing printing press. And then there's you who makes your own press. So there's this it's, it's a yeah. vibrant artistic world out there, which is so cool. And... 
you get to do all the art for your book. So uh, you know, you're an artist. You said you identify as an artist. You're making all this cool stuff. You're supposed to be about peace and love, man. Like everyone, let's get together. And you know, you're you're a teacher <laughs> at the American University in Dubai. People can come. Your goal is to inspire the next generation. So where did all these dark thoughts about the different types, not only about the apocalypse or the end of the world, but all the different types throughout history, organizing them in chronological order? Who pushed you down this rabbit hole and why? Okay. All right. Great question. Uh, it started uh, the way I think a lot of us started thinking about it. It was this was definitely a COVID nineteen project. All right. <laughs> uh, so you know everything uh, everything shuts down. Uh, so I just moved to Dubai, and then everything shuts down, and I'm sitting in my apartment. I have nothing to do, and I'm and I start reading Camus, The Plague, and all of these other books about the end of the world, just like everyone else. And instead of learning how to make sourdough bread uh, like everyone else, you know, I I decided I was like, okay, let's start making like an art. You know, I started looking up all these different like true stories about the end of the world, and you know, you go down this like rabbit hole of just like, oh, that's really interesting, and oh, Haley's Comet. Okay, all right. And, and all of the sensationalism and all the hysteria just became so fascinating to me, juxtaposed with what was going on right around me at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Uh, so just playing off of those with each other. So at first it was going to be an art show about these pieces of history, like with illustrations. Uh, and then it just, you know, the stories that went along with it just became so much more interesting to me. So they kind of pair with each other. So it's part art. and uh, But the stories are really you know where where it comes together yeah you know it, it's funny because so you were, it was the plague you said right by albert camus that did you read that in the original yeah, yeah. french or did you use a translation oh i wish uh no, <laughs> I'm just uh, kidding. no the english translation i'm kidding i i mean i you know i went through the same thing i read the stand uh in its original english uh and you know that was <laughs> that was pretty funny to read during during the, the pandemic that was that was a lot of fun so now how did you do research for this so i mean i imagine this must have started as, uh, you know, thinking about a plague ending the world. And maybe that led you to the bubonic plague. And then so but like from that, where did you start to branch off? And then how did you do your research? You know, uh, I know you're a university professor, but, you know, scholarly research, I imagine, is not your forte. Uh, so how did you like how did you do that and then pick what you wanted for the book? Um, yeah, it was a lot of a lot of deep diving. Uh, I mean, you can read some books on it, but it was a lot more just scouring the internet and finding uh, trustworthy resources mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, just yeah, and cross checking everything. But I think once it once it starts to expand, and I, you know, you, like you said, you start with the plague and mm -hmm. the, the the major things that we all think about, sure. like volcanoes and everything with the right. end of the world. Yeah. And then, you you know, my lists just kept growing. And I was like, okay. And then you start looking for more and then you look for variations. You say, okay, were the, what are the other fables around the world that maybe I have a hard time finding mm -hmm. on like uh, English language Google search, right? Like what can I find oh, where you really start like deep diving into like, how do you look for in Japan, what their stories about the end of the world are. How do you look mm -hmm. for something in, you know, in the Middle East or something? Um, so, yeah, that's where it got kind of deep dive and you and you really have yeah. to start to scour it to look for new stories that uh, are different than the ones that I already found. I have to say I was really impressed because I have obsessions, a strong word. But anyone who has listened to my other podcast uh, where we talk about pop culture science, a lot of the episodes recently have been about the apocalypse. And I think a lot of movies in pop culture, it's in the zeitgeist. It's not just, you know, um, it was zombies and aliens and, you know, plagues. And, you know, The Last of Us is about mushrooms taking over the world. Right. And so uh, yeah. it's, it's out there. But you found some very unique stories that I had never even heard of before. I, I'll be honest, a lot of what I read in your book, I feel like I could give a scholarly lecture on. Uh, because I've, <laughs> I know about them so well, but there were some some nuggets you found that were pretty interesting. We're gonna we're gonna get to them uh, because I, I want to talk about them individually. But you know, I just the last episode I did uh, was with Christina Ward about cults and how they affect uh, you know how they affected food in in the world. And you know, one of the things we talked about was the Seventh Day Adventists. They were a doomsday cult. They were a failed doomsday cult that like converted their beliefs into basically a, a lifestyle brand for lack of a better term. And now there's some of the healthiest people in the world. So that's, it's, it's interesting how, you know, 
Apocalypse, we, we think of apocalyptic cults as groups that are defined by the end of the world, but in truth, they're, they're not all of them are. I mean, some, you mentioned, some dissolve completely, some go on and change, but uh, change into something else. But that's an interesting mindset I think we always have. My point is we're very, like, Amerocentric in how we think about these things, and we have our predisp- predisposed notions, but it's not always true. And each each page in this book could have a, a, a book or a tomb written about just that topic, um, right. particularly the doomsday cults. Each one of those, I mean, it's, it's so crazy. But the, the more I got into those, and that itself could have, I, it kind of kept expanding. And I was like, do I keep adding more doomsday cults? Yeah. Because there's so many times. And the one thing that kind of linked them all together, because you're right, they you know they turn into a health food brand, or they turn into something else, or you know it has. You know, that can dissolve and turn into something else. The one thing that really kind of linked them all together was the fact that it was kind of a it was a move to uh, get everyone in the cult to sacrifice everything. So if you believe the world's going to end, you have no reason uh, to continue working. You have no reason to commit yourself to your family or your loved ones or anyone else that you cared about, your cat or your dog or anything at all, because Someone just told you the world is going to end. And if you believe that, then just commit yourself to our cause. Come out here, live in the woods with us. We'll take care of you. And you don't have to worry about all that that money. Bring your money. Give us that money. And then we'll do something else. And if it doesn't end, we'll come up with another date or we'll turn into this other thing and we'll evolve into it. We'll figure it out as we go. But you're (laughs) going to be so committed that uh, you're, you're already in deep. Yeah. Uh, so you just keep <laughs> sacrificing. I mean, it just seems I mean, when you see them all together, you're like, oh, this is like such a clear plan yeah. uh, to, to get everyone to sacrifice everything. Well, if nothing else, I mean, I think it is a clear plan. I agree with you. But if you don't agree with that, you can at least say that it is a tried and true method to get people to kind of do what you want. But I mean, that's true of fear in general. I mean, that's kind of how religion started. I mean, if it, it started as the fear of an almighty, all-powerful being. So the, those who can talk to that almighty, powerful being, you should probably listen to them because, you know, they have the power of that deity on their side. And that translates in many different ways. Fear translates into power. If you're afraid of something, you're giving up your power to something else, you know. Um, and that's why the media. So yeah. po- that's why they... If you fear scare people so much, they give their power to you and they're like, hey, tell me, what do I do? And then people listen and they become more receptive to that. So, um, yeah, there's cults going on here that are, I would say, not necessarily religious in nature. I think there's political cults, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. and oh, yeah. uh, that's, you know, not, not a stretch, I don't think. But, you know, I do think that uh, you mentioned these are it's a great it's a great uh, observation that that certain groups use that to control, but the end, right? We seem to have an obsession with how things are going to end. And I think it has to do with our love of narratives as a culture. You know, we are very linear thinkers. Um, There's, we came into existence and we're going to go out of existence. There's a, it's a line and some cultures don't, they believe in circles, but that's what I think. Uh, When you were studying this, what what kind of conclusions did you come to as to why human beings throughout our history seem to be, you know, drawn to uh, and kind of hyper-focused on the end? Yeah, well, we certainly have always been interested in the end of the world. I mean, all of the stories dating back, and then even now, it's constantly being updated. Like I said, I started this with uh, COVID-19, so everyone was talking about the plague. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, it was everyone was talking about AI, and now everyone's talking about World War Three and the, the, <laughs> the wars are going to end the world. So, and we're back to yeah. nuclear apocalypse, right? right so, we're, yeah. so everything, and meanwhile, we still have to be afraid of asteroids and volcanoes. Those don't go away. Right, right, so there's right, all yeah. of these different things. So, I mean, we do always have these fears, but that linear narrative, I think, um, it comes from, you're right, we're interested in stories. And what more powerful story, what more drama can you possibly have than everything disappearing? And also, I think there's um, this added layer, not just that it is the most dramatic thing that could possibly happen, but there's almost this um, uh, selfishness isn't like it, but this sort of egotism of Mm -hmm. us thinking that even though time spans so long, (laughs) wouldn't it be something if we 
few are the ones that it happens to, you know, like mm -hmm. if, it, if we were there for it and this really important moment, the most important moment that it all ends, right. but it would be during our lifetime and all of the trivial things that we spend our days with, those don't matter because we were around for that, that big moment. So, I mean, it, it's that combination of it's really important, but also we are part of that important thing so people become interested a little extra interested because of that yeah i think that is i mean human we are the ultimate selfish being you know i mean and i think another thing that i see in a lot of this book which we'll get to is that human beings are so obsessed with controlling nature and we we are so egotistical as a species that we don't even consider ourselves a species right like if you look at taxonomy mm. we are you know, homo sapiens but are we though? Are aren't we the ones who created yeah. the book? <laughs> Do, should we really yeah. classify we're ourselves? We're the only ones with souls, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah. of course we are. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's we are very you know self centered. I mean, we don't mind killing off you know large swaths of other animals and making them extinct so that we can grow some more corn uh, in a rainforest. I mean, mm. we no qualms about that. Uh, and there's, you know, th that is, you know, that's the key to our, our demise, I would say, uh, if I had to pick one. But uh, and I also think it's interesting how, you know, it is dramatic, but it's dramatic because we make it dramatic. The story's about because it, it hasn't happened. Right. And so we can mm. then make that story up. And it is always dramatic. And, you know, sci you always think of religion as being the ones who are kind of the on the, the wacko end of the spectrum. But science has been extremely wacko, too. Right. I mean, any extremes are going to have that because, you know, the first atomic tests, we thought we were going to ignite the world. You know, we thought we were going to burn the world. We still set mm -hmm. them off. We didn't care. But we we thought that. Large Hadron Collider, theories about small black holes that were going to yeah. absorb the Earth and, and kill everyone in it. Uh, you know, religion obviously has the rapture where I'm not quite sure I understand it, but people yeah. are basically beamed up to heaven uh, is the way I understand it. Four horsemen coming and 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 killing everything. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's I think it's because, you know, we you have the Big Bang on science and you have and things explode into existence. And in Genesis, you have, you know, uh, God just boom, life's explosion of life just, you know, snaps fingers and all of a sudden it's there. And I think because you have this dramatic beginning, we have to have a dramatic end. And we think so highly of ourselves that we couldn't possibly just trail off into the night. Uh, although I think that that's probably more likely. But what do you think about that? Uh, is this the the bang versus the whimper? Yeah. And, you know, how <laughs> yeah, it would. Uh, right. Yeah. OK, so you're more of a whimper. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I. I it, it would seem so. I mean, if you were to bring someone from 200 years ago before the Industrial Revolution, before we really start destroying the environment, before mm -hmm. overpopulation and all the, the new fears, they would look at this and they would look around and say a lot of the end of the world is already happening and that we're, mm -hmm. you know, that this, this is an entirely different world and maybe it's not made for humans anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, those those fears uh, would be around. Um my, as far as the science thing, um, I mean, yeah, like you said, like, you know, I don't write this book to poke fun specifically at religion or to tell anyone their beliefs are wrong mm -hmm. um, because there's everything's this everything's imperfect. Right. And that's mm -hmm. sort of the purpose of this book is to kind of poke fun and, and laugh at all of it. How many times we've been wrong right. uh, while also acknowledging that you know, we mess a lot of things up and that, you know, all of this could happen. Uh, but um uh, Stoffler's flood in Germany, uh, uh, another great story of hysteria where, um, you know, this imperfect science of astrology, where this guy's looking at the sky and saying, oh, the, uh, all of the planets are going to align. Something major is going to happen. I know it's going to be the end of the world. And it's a Pisces year. So that's got to be a, a global flood. We're all going to die by flood. Right. So, yeah. you know, the naysayers mock him and say this is never going to happen. And then it's an extra dry year. And then the day that he said the flood was going to happen, you know, it starts to rain. So everyone starts freaking out. <laughs> and all right, of these right. people die as they're scrambling to get on boats and, and trying to uh, to save themselves. Um, and the result, of, but then, of course, there was no global flood. So the result was that people sort of dismissed him and he kind of lived the rest of his years out in shame until he died by plague mm -hmm. uh but <laughs> oh, wow. uh, but yeah he uh but but uh, astrology since then has been kind of a joke it's kind of been this like niche little thing in the corner that can't be taken seriously so i mean all it takes is like as one 
mistake for right. a, a piece of science or to, to be dismissed or mocked and for us to kind of move on to the next thing. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of what I'm saying is that both science and religion, who seem to be on opposite ends of the belief spectrum, have both predicted things that turned out to be ludicrous, you know, um, mm-hmm. or at least they haven't happened yet, you could say. And both sides w- w- would say that. Uh, and Snowflake's right, Flood's yeah. great because, you know, in some ways he did create a mini end of the world, right? Because <laughs> for a lot yeah. of people, that was a lot of destruction. A guy built an ark, you know, um, it, it's, th- there was a lot to it. I mean, and the odds, I don't know what, uh, this happened in Germany, I think, um, or what is now Germany. Uh, I mean, what are the odds that it rains that day? Could you, I know. <laughs> how I know. cool is that? Right. I, had it not yeah. rained, people's lives could have been saved. I mean, what are the odds of that? You know, and maybe it rained a lot. Yeah. I don't know. But um, but that that's a fantastic story. And, astro- you know, astrology, like you said, it is kind of a, a, a maligned um, discipline, but there's a lot of math in it. I mean, it's mostly mm. math. People think of it as, oh, it's your horoscope in the daily newspaper saying anything that could apply to anybody. But there is math behind it. You know, whether you believe in that math or not is that's the belief system. Yeah. But it is a science in that you are using real constellations that exist, real math that exists. Um, you know, mm. I think they don't really uh, take in drift, like star drift. I don't know there's a name for that, but how constellations kind of move throughout the sky. So it's not really accurate when it was when it was created thousands of years ago. However. But, but I, I think it could have had a different trajectory had this, uh, sure. had this catastrophe not happened. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, I think, the point you're making is that it's all it takes is, like you said, one goof. And now it's <laughs> no one no one buys into it. Uh, but it's also interesting. You know, I'm sure you've heard this before, but that, you know, that we that all of society is nine missed meals away from collapse, you know? And uh, (laughs) that is a scary thought. It's a little dramatic, but I don't know that it's not true. You don't really talk about that in the book. Yeah, you don't talk about it in the book. What do you think about that? Um, Well, I mean, but it would be, that's the collapse of a society. So it would be different reasons for us to somehow be without resources, right? So, uh, one of the chapters is that we run out of resources, which would okay. be in the timeline of like 100 years from now when, you know, we have scarcity and wars over missing uh, clean water and all of the things that we're afraid of running out of. Um, and But then, you know, it could be war could be the reason we are withheld our food and resources. So, I mean, there's different reasons a society can collapse um, and then we would be without food. Oh, I, yeah. Well, I think, you know, let's say... But I think here, the United States is a great example because I think, um, you know, we, we should probably get to overpopulation. I got a lot to say about that. And that, I think, influences uh, a lot of the way I think. But, you know, if you were to yeah. if we somehow ran out of food here for whatever reason, I, I think nine meals is a lot. That's three days. I feel mm. like you would start to see chaos much before that. If there was any warning, oh, yeah. we we're going to run out of food. I mean, there was warning you're going to run out of toilet paper and all of a sudden people are you know, knocking over old ladies in Costco to make sure that they get four containers of toilet paper. I thought toilet paper was going to be our national currency, you know, in, in June of yeah, 2020. Yeah. Uh, but that's what happens with with um, with some, uh, you know, with warning without warning. Yeah. You know, who knows what would happen? Day one. Oh, yeah. The the looting and the, uh, the, the hoarding of of goods. Um, yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't take long for it to get really ugly. Um, yeah, I don't have a stockpile of anything. Do you have a stockpile of things just in case? You're goddamn right. I do. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what was your, what was your toilet paper situation in 2020? If I may ask, how were, how'd you do? Uh, I was, I was here. So I was observing it all. You know, I still am connected to the U.S. I get all my news from the U.S. still. So Good for um, you. so I'm looking at that and I'm looking around here. I'm like, yeah. I still have toilet paper. Everything's fine here. Yeah. Um, and I talked to my family. They're like, yeah, we have toilet paper. It's OK. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it, it, yeah, it's all. Were they, was anyone hitting you up for it like the Russians did with Levi's in the 80s? Like were, that's, a, that's a dated reference if there ever was one. Uh, but were people hitting you up for uh, toilet paper to, you know, send it out to them and anything like that? 
Oh, you're, I mean, remember everything, supply chain issues were crazy. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. It was so bad here. Everything, uh, I'd order something, it would take six months to get here. Right. Um, so it was, uh, everything was Serious business. Well, it's, I mean, it is, and in a lot of ways, you know, if you can't wipe your butt after you defecate, it does feel like the end of the world, but it isn't, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. I think that that's an overstatement. Also, now I'm a, I'm a bidet man. I don't mean to get too personal, no, but no, I mean, great. I got to recommend it. Yeah. Uh, you know, the toilet paper is grand and all, but, uh, sure. uh, a combination of bidet and toilet paper is the way to go. I think that that's right. You know, I, I don't have a bidet. Um, you know, I'm not as fancy. I'm not a fancy, popular, you know, university professor. But every now and again, you know, <laughs> you hop in a nice shower, make yourself sure you're, you're clean. I think that's the way to go. If anything, the pandemic th- taught us that, you know, uh, anal cleanliness is really the key to godliness. That was what they missed um, with that with All that right. sentiment. So I'm with you on that. Um, yeah. I do. I am jealous of your bidet. Uh, but, you know, it, it feels like the end of the world if you don't have enough, you know, way to clean yourself, but it's not. And we talk about the end of the world like it's something mm. that's in the future or possible as if it hasn't happened before. And this is what I think is so interesting is that, you know, when you look at, you mentioned it, the Great Dying, the Permian uh, the Permian Triassic Extinction Event. You know, I did a whole episode uh, with Henry G about the history of life on Earth, you know, going back yeah. 4.5 billion years ago. There have been many extinction events. You know, and this yeah. one was insane because this was 96 percent of all life on Earth was extinguished. If that's not doomsday, I don't know what is. It's already happened. We are the yeah. epilogue. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We think that the world hasn't ended before. So when I tell people the synopsis of this book, and I'm like, you know how it has ended before? When we thought it was gonna end, <laughs> yeah, yeah. How it could end in the future. And they go, ended before. But they think, you know, if it hasn't ended for humans, then it doesn't count. But it's ended, you know, so we've had five major mass extinctions. And we're actually overdue for a sixth one, whether it's, uh, um, you know, we have 20 super volcanoes on Earth, and those could go off at any moment. Uh, and, uh, of course, the um, that, you know, the biodiversity, the loss of plants and animals at a rapid rate, uh, people talk about we are now in the middle of a sixth major. So, um, yeah, depends how you look at it. It certainly does. Yeah. That was what's amazing to me is that life has been extinguished almost completely several times. Uh, but, yeah, you know, it's also interesting, you know, you, you mentioned volcanoes. Do you... Ha- we should probably get in touch with Vegas when we're done with this and just run through what's in your book. What are the possibilities? And like, let's get some odds on it, you know, um, because, you know, you yeah. mentioned alien invasion. We'll get to that, too. Um, but, you know, is that an improbability? Yeah, maybe. But there's a lot of stuff coming out that maybe maybe an alien invasion's already happened. Maybe win money on that. Who knows? You know, I think we should find out yeah, where we stand, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what the odds would be. The odd makers would say. Uh, so I, you said earlier, because I like to know what, what people think would happen. Um, and, and you said something about, you know, it being mankind's undoing of itself in oh, some yeah. way was, was your, yeah. I would say, I mean, are you asking me my opinion? Because I'm happy to give it to you. Sure, yeah. You want to know what I think? You want, How, how's it going to go? So if, I, if I'm betting money, we, so you and I, we go and get the Vegas odds. We run down. We say, we talk to a bookie. We get the odds out, right? Overpopulation is going to be on there. I think overpopulation, that's where I'm putting my, I'm betting the house on that, Daryl. I'm putting all my money on that because I think that when you look at overpopulation, it is the cause of all the other problems. You know, climate change doesn't exist. Well, well, don't clip that. Time climate doesn't exist, comma, without all of humans (laughs) intervention, right? I mean, if it wasn't for the industrial revolution and us trying to, to suck energy out of the earth itself, we wouldn't be in this mess. And, you know, I I have some, uh, I have some pretty ignorant, you know, Facebook is, is great for keeping up with old high school friends. And I've got some brilliant friends I went to high school with, and I've also got some ignorant trolls and to them, one or two degrees. What's that? That's the difference between a sweater and a coat, right? Because they think again, like humans do one or two degrees on the global scale is the difference between everything alive and everything dead. That's the difference between ice and water. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's the difference between a polar bear living and walruses running the Arctic. I mean, two degrees is a lot. That's a, that's a ton. Mm. And that's all human population. So uh, let's talk about this, you know, because I could go on forever. You got to stop me here, man, because I will over I will over express 
my thoughts on overpopulation and I don't want to flood you out. So let's talk about something you found that I was, I, you set me down a rabbit hole that I didn't think I could go down. And by rabbit hole, I mean mouse hole. Uh, you talk about yeah. the test rats in mouse city. Let's discuss yeah. this because I got a lot to talk about and I want to hear you give me, what did you find? How, how did you discover this? How do you think I missed okay, it? So. And then how did you, where did you end up? <laughs> okay. So that was, yeah, I love talking about this one because that was <laughs> one of the last additions to the book. You know, I had this oh. list that I was going through and yeah. I always, you know, I'm coming up with things and I'm like, oh, I got to look up overpopulation and, you know, how you find different stories that relate to it and where it goes. Yeah. So it ended up landing in the 1960s where people, it was the first time people were really starting to get concerned uh, about uh, overpopulation because the global population had just exploded to, uh, I think it was like three, you know, billion. three billion people. Yeah. Uh, which had tripled within a lifetime from one to three billion is a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, and now it's like a quaint little number to us. But, uh, at the time people were like, we're running out of everything. Uh, little did they know, you know, we'd, right. we'd uh, <laughs> yeah. keep going. Let's see what we can do. Hey, hold my beer. 1968. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, Dr. John Calhoun has this uh, experiment with uh, mice in a cage and, you know, they have, uh, they have, uh, you know, uh, these rooms off the side of the cage and endless amounts of food and water and all, everything they would need. Uh, but they are contained in a finite space. So now it's a utopia. I didn't mean to interrupt you. So this is like a mouse utopia, as I believe what they called it. Everything yeah. they need, plenty of room. Yeah, they all love it. Yeah, they're healthy. They have family ties. You know, the the mother mice nurture the young, mm -hmm. and everything's great. And they all have their own little sections that they mm -hmm. can keep to. Yep. Um, and as mice do, they populate and they populate and they populate, and then it gets so crowded um, that uh, you know all the things that we start to relate to with uh, you know uh, there's no space. So. The mothers stop caring for the young and everyone's kind of off for themselves and the bigger, stronger, more aggressive uh, rats uh, take over the, the, the rooms off to the side and the other ones sort of, uh, you know, hide away from society and they don't clean themselves and they don't tend to themselves and they, they stop. Uh, taking part in mice activities or whatever it is that they do, you know, normal <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. society <laughs> yeah. activities. Yeah. Uh, and they just, they remove themselves and, uh, and the, you know, what you think happens, right? But then the surprising part to me was that, okay, so once they no longer are a functioning society and they're not even reproducing anymore, um, so the population, of course, starts going down. Um, and you think, okay, well, then it will get back to a clear level and um, they will be able to be a functioning society again. And maybe it will go through these waves or something. And instead, the yeah. twist was that once they lost those societal norms of taking care of each other and sharing and nurturing and having normal habitats, yeah. um, they, they stop eating and it, uh, and they don't care for each other and they don't procreate. And it literally went down to zero. They all died out. And that was the craziest part to me. And everyone freaks out and they said, overpopulation, that's what's going to happen. That's how we're all going to die. Um, and I, you know, I, most of the book is, is written, hopefully it's not all doom and gloom because yeah. even he said at the end, the response, there was this overwhelming response to his research saying that Dr. Calhoun is telling us the world is going to end by this. And instead he's saying, this is the start of a research. Yeah. Uh, and the next step is to figure out how we are more complex and more capable than these mice in the society as we run out of space, but still have resources, mm -hmm. um, so I mean, it's uh, that one because it was the la one of the last ones. I um, that one really stuck with me. So whenever people asked me about um, what I thought of the end of the world, I just kept going back to overpopulation. <laughs> and every time I see yeah, these videos of, of of people that just um, it's almost like they 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 don't exist in a society anymore. And they you know you see people fighting on planes and fighting yeah. in the airport and just mm -hmm. acting like who who raised these people? And I mm -hmm. think of. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, I right. the, 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 the rodents and I'm, and I'm like, oh, my God, uh, you know, we're no longer caring for each other because we've run out of space and resources and we're all cramped like sardines on a, on a plane and we're and we're fighting for everything. Um, yeah, that's that's the only one that I felt was kind of dark 
for me. Yeah. Everything else, that, the book, I, I try to keep it light, but yeah. that one really uh, stuck with me. It is light for a doomsday book. I'll give you that. Uh, it's a weird goal to make a light doomsday book, but I think you succeeded. The pictures help. Uh, yeah, this one. So <laughs> let, let's yeah, let's fill in some 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 spaces here because so this was. Um, you said Calhoun. Um, oh God, Doctor Calhoun. Uh, with John, uh, John Calhoun. So this was called. It was officially called the. Mor- There's a good documentary. Is there? Oh, I'm gonna check that out. Uh, well, 100%. yeah, it's a short one, but he goes over everything. Yeah, oh, black and white. Film that's great. Yes, yeah, so this was like Utopia 28. The mortality inhibiting environment for mice is the official name. Four and a half foot cube, 256 beds, endless water, food. Um, paper for bedding and all that uh it started out with eight eight uh, eight albino mice and as you said free of of disease there's no disease here first pups are born three and a half months later population doubles every 55 days top boom town was 2.2 thousand mice in this four and a half foot cube so so rodents i have a social hierarchy as you mentioned so the alpha males are taking care of the of the harem of women right as the population grows the alpha males, there's a new competitor every, you know, every cycle. So he's getting tired. Out. He's boxing his way, you know, uh, to, mm. to women. He gets tired out. He gets taken over. The aggressive males come in. Uh, the 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 mothers let their kids go. So the kids are either die of neglect or they're let out too early and they just don't have the social skills. And this is where things get crazy, right? Because the maladjusted females start acting like hermits. So they start staying away from men. And then you've got the maladjusted males that are preening and obsessively licking themselves. So they and they had no interest in sex. They're trying to look as good as possible, yeah. but they have no interest in sex. And Calhoun noted that that maladjusted behavior spreads like a contagion. So just that behavior uh-huh. is what's spreading. This was crazy because this feels like America. Right. It feels like I mean, uh, let me read. You look look at the story and it's so easy to project. Sure. Yeah. yeah. That's going on when you think about like people hiding in their basements and they don't come out and they're stuck on, on you know, all of this. Uh, yeah, everything. Just uh, I sometimes I talk about it and I forget that I'm talking about mice. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to read you something. But I mean, you know, you've got there's this myth of like the aggressive male now. And so a lot of women are very hesitant, you know, on, on dating sites and whatever uh, to like to trust men. Uh, there's a lot of men who are, you know, really into looking good, but are afraid to approach women. I mean, this is happening. Let me read you this this paragraph. OK, um, so they're talking about how the how the the uh, the, the the mothers are the, the pups are getting kicked out early and neglect and they're going through that. Eventually, other deviant behavior emerged. Mice who had been raised improperly or kicked out of the nest early failed to develop healthy social bonds and therefore struggled in adulthood with social interactions. Maladjusted females began isolating themselves like hermits in an empty apartment, usually behavior, uh, unusual behavior among mice. Maladjusted males, meanwhile, took to grooming all day preening and licking themselves hour after hour. Calhoun called them the beautiful ones. And yet, even while obsessing over their appearance, these males had zero interest in courting females, zero interest in sex. I really thought when I read this, they were talking about Gen Z and some millennials. I really, I was like, I was like, holy cow, that's our younger generation right now. What's going on here? Yeah. Uh, so th- yeah. <laughs> this blew my mind. You read these articles about, you know, Gen Z's not having sex and yeah. you're just thinking, oh, my God, like what, you know, but then, you know, what is what is the global population going to do? Are we reaching that yeah. that pinnacle point that it does start going down and, you know, people are afraid to have kids because of global warming and they don't want to bring them into this world. And then Gen Z, if they're not having sex, what happens with the generation after that? Yeah. Yeah. It's. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, this was nuts. This, I mean, this was something that, you know, this, and now, now granted, you know, like you said, we are speculating, we're projecting. Uh, it's hard not to, because, you know, in a lot of ways, this is confirming everything I already believe, which is a confirmation bias problem we have in this world, especially when it comes to news anyway. So I don't want to get too carried away. However, I feel like I'm getting carried away because I, this is so this really solidifies everything I, I believe. And I think that overpopulation, we think as human beings that we can control nature and it's all an illusion. It's the same illusion that our money's worth anything or the illusion uh, that you know the illusion of control exists. It's the same. You know, we don't control tigers in, in a cage. They just can't get out of the cage. 
you know, but once nature, nature has systems in place and nature has systems for overpopulation. It, it's happened before and we are an invasive mm. species on this planet and nature's going to take care of us. It's about, we just need to understand that. And this might be the way, Daryl, this might be the way it happens. Yeah. I mean, I, well, yeah, you think about it with, uh, I, I forget where it's from, but the saying of, uh, you know, whenever I see these giant storms that are wiping out communities all over the world. Mm. And I think of um, uh, the comparison to a dog with too many fleas just shaking itself to get yeah. all of us off of it. Just yeah. to, you know, just a, a little disruption can help clear some of us out and clear up some space <laughs> and, and get yeah. rid of that itch a little bit, yeah. you know, and it's, yeah. uh, well, th there's all there's very few species on Earth that can live in extremely crowded circumstances. And the ones that can have evolved that way. You know, I mean, it, there's this interesting, uh, you know, comedian Ricky Gervais said this. So it's, you know, I, it's not considered the source. I think he's exactly right. But when people say that we're more evolved, right, a lot of people say that oh, humans are more evolved. And it's like, well, that's silly. No, we're not. We're as evolved as every other creature on the planet because every yeah. creature is as evolved yeah. as they need to be for their environment. That's the definition of evolution. Yeah. Everything's evolved. And, but, but like cockroaches and even rats to a certain extent, they have evolved to live in high densely populated areas. Now, as you know, rats are rodents, you know, they're, they would fall victim to the same stuff that we talked about in the mouse experiment to a greater or lesser extent, but cockroaches, insects, uh, they have no, they have no problem. They've done as well as anyone. Yeah. With all of, yeah. With that, with uh, the, yeah, yeah. So, so I don't, so there are, there, and I think that's part of why people say that they'll live forever. Like they'll outlast everyone is because they kind of have everything they need to resist mm. all the problems going on. You know, they can be resistant to disease. They can be resistant to radiation. They live in cramped quarters, you know, um, that's mm. highly evolved and uh, they're not going anywhere. So uh, of that 96% that were extinguished, I think cockroaches managed to avoid the uh, the blast, the blast radius, I think. Uh, yeah, and I, and I think they would. Yeah, I mean, of the Anthropocene, as far as mm. it's been us, rats and cockroaches, and everyone else is in trouble, but the three of us are doing just fine, so whatever that's worth. <laughs> we're doing all right. Uh, so there's a couple other great things here. You know, um, you mentioned, you know, as over, and so here's one that like is a, is a direct result of overpopulation, because as we affect the climate, you know, new bugs, new superbugs are being brought up out of the soil, you know, um, viruses and bacteria that we haven't seen for, that the planet hasn't seen, for, let's say for a million years, is now reintroduced into the world way before humans existed. You know, that's a problem. You mentioned locusts, and locusts are, uh, it's kind of fascinating because they, they appear in biblical, lots of biblical plagues, but this could happen. I mean, you know, there's swarms of them have been seen. I, I, I mean, I, I read a lot of this these weird news articles where swarms of locusts have been places. They come in, eat all the crops, and then leave. Uh, that could kind of happen. That's a scary one that's appeared in biblical times, but also is kind of going on now, can create a famine. You know, insects take yeah. over the world is what I'm saying. That could be the next one. Yes. Well, I mean, locusts, well, I think a lot of these older stories that have gone on to become sort of symbols of the end of the world, right, yeah, like yeah. Uh, floods and locusts, uh, it's because for a certain community of people before globalization, that was the end of the world. So if you're a farmer and you have everything you've ever wanted and you've worked your whole life and generations and then, you know, a black cloud of locusts come and clear out everything you've ever worked for, yeah. that kind of is the end of the world. The same way, yeah, right. uh, you know, the, in Mesopotamia, when a giant flood comes and the rivers flood and they, they literally sweep right. away entire villages, yeah. that's the end of the world to them. So then yeah. they go and they resettle and they relocate and they tell stories of the end of the entire world, yeah. but to them, that was the world. But, uh, you know, of course, there's not enough water on the world to actually flood everything. Um, but so then these stories evolve and they become the entire world. But, you know, to farmers or people living by a river, in a way it is. <laughs> well, when you wipe out that village, you haven't made contact with anyone else. That is, like you said, that yeah. is the world's just smaller. You know, we think of the world as the yeah. earth because we're global. But if you're not and you don't, you know, this comes before any, you know, uh, nautical travel, then, yeah, that is the world. You're right. Uh, so what, what, one thing we got to mention here, uh, I think you call it the year without a summer, April 15th, 1815. So this volcano erupts in Indonesia for four weeks. 
And volcanoes are interesting. You mentioned them earlier and how we're kind of overdue. Volcanoes are kind of, I think, they're in some ways the underdog. So most people, if you're, we got our betting odds thing going here, right, Daryl? Yeah, yeah. If we're going to bet, I'm guessing most people are not putting money on volcanoes. However, well, I think right, smart- that's the underdog, yeah. I'll take, yeah. I'll take <laughs> right. that. <laughs> exactly. Right. So I'm putting my money on overpopulation, 100%. I'm not, still not changing my bet, Daryl. But if I've got to hedge my bet someplace, I'm going with that's volcanoes. Yeah, because they yeah. can really do a lot of damage. They have in this, I, you know, uh, in this idea. The same thing is the problem with nuclear war, right, is that ash goes up and, and it clouds uh, clouds in the sky stop the sun from getting down and, and it creates a nuclear winter. This year without a summer is interesting. So tell me about this story and what happened because of it. Because I think in some ways this is a great story of redemption. And like you did, use the pandemic to your advantage. Uh yeah, I mean, uh, so, it, yeah, a lot of these stories, even though people think it's the end of the world, and like you said, this super volcano erupts, and you know, the debris goes into the stratosphere, and it circles the globe, blocks out the sunlight, crops die, starvation, so people have, you know, people think that the world is coming to an end, they think maybe it's, you know, that if it's snows in June uh, in, in uh, warmer parts of the world, mm -hmm. and certainly they think something's wrong and it could be happening forever. Right. So that same scramble for more than toilet paper, right. but everything. <laughs> yeah. And so they start to, uh, but, you know, people get creative during it. So mm. when you look around the world, what happens in that same year, um, you know, people like Mary Shelley writing yeah. Frankenstein, which right. is, you know, because people were afraid and all of these, uh, these, these uh, terrifying but creative things come out of it. And in Europe, uh, people were running out of food. So they start killing and eating their only source, their best source of uh, transportation, the horse, right? So horses start to become food. So then it spurs uh, what was already beginning the early inventions of the bicycle right. all of a sudden they needed it a lot more so right. people start putting more energy into uh creating a, a better uh form of what later becomes the bicycle mm -hmm. um so it's just yeah i mean to put like i said trying to put uh, a positive or <laughs> right. um ho hopeful spin on it and uh, you know I, I i just to clarify the reason on that you know it has the illustrations but also i don't think i could you know, spent two years writing a, a book on the end of the world if every chapter and every topic was was really dark and, and left me feeling down. So I, I couldn't help but try to put some lighter, <laughs> uplifting points in it. I hope you don't think that's, you know, was... Uh, not it wasn't fitting. Anyway. <laughs> no, I think, look, I think it's, yeah. you know, it's art. Right. And I think, you know, the great thing about art is that you can kind of do it the way you want if you think that's the right way to do it. And people can then interpret. Mm. So, um, yeah, I don't I don't think so at all. I think that, you know, I think people probably wouldn't read it if it was a downer. But I think it's something that is a downer by nature, you know, because because some, yeah, so yeah. some things you talk about are possible. And they haven't happened. Other things are very possible and are are currently happening. And so, you know, those each have different levels of um, uh, fear, I guess, associated with them. You know, some's humorous, some is not. Uh, this one's this one is not. It's neither of those because I think it's uplifting. You know, you you meant, uh, also mentioned that Lord Byron wrote Darkness, which is you know one of his, his mm -hmm. favorite favorite uh, famous pieces. It inspired people. You know, for better, for worse, you know, this was kind of like what happened during the pandemic. A lot of people started different creative projects, you included. And, you know, humans deal, you know, is is part of part of what I'm saying is that we get along with it. Uh, another one. This is another interesting one is that solar uh, solar storms, you know, um, uh, I think they're called X flares from the sun. These are mm. really dangerous. Another this is another underdog, right? Like volcanoes, yeah, underdogs, yeah. solar storms are an underdog because they're powerful. They could easily wipe out our electrical grid. I mean, without question, There's, it's not yeah. like it's a question of will it happen? It's like, well, no, it would destroy. It would knock us back to the Stone Age 100 percent. But they're like bullets getting shot out, you know, trying to hit, you know, a marble at, you know, five miles or something. Right. It's the odds yeah. of us getting hit are improbable. They're not impossible. And as a matter of fact, it's just statistics. They're, we're going to get hit by one. It's yeah. just there's enough that go out. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're going to get hit. And we have been hit. Uh, so tell me about the time we were hit. You know, luckily it was a I don't know. I don't know what the probability of us getting hit like every hundred years is, but we might be due for this as well. Yeah, I mean, it's probably happened a bunch of times. But mm. since we've been a, a world uh 
reliant on electricity mm -hmm. and uh, the electrical grid. It's only happened once where it basically wiped out uh, the power grid in the entire northern hemisphere. Uh, and, you know, uh, our power lines were exploding into flames and, um, uh, and you know, people were knocked back and were without electricity. But that was a long time ago. So now I think we would be, um, you know, it would it would do a lot more damage because we're so much more reliant. Uh, you and I wouldn't be able to talk right no. now without electricity. So, no. um, so I, I mean, we're, we're so much more reliant on it. But um, again, that um, uh, that that scrappy human nature of you know we are aware of this. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I, I don't know how prepared we are. We weren't as prepared as we thought we would be with uh, COVID nineteen and a plague coming. But with this one, you know, the electrical companies and the governments are working to fortify electrical grids. So even if we do get that hit, there's some plan of getting things back together, uh, you know, in a faster time than uh, when it happened the last time. And you get these beautiful Aurora Borealis shows, this sure, light show right. in the sky yeah. as it hits. Yeah. Uh, the, the earth. Yeah, the last thing um, you so see. Be nice. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the movie The Ring. You know, the last thing you see before you die is the ring. Uh, this is the last thing you see. The last thing you see before you die is the aurora borealis, the northern lights. So if you gotta go, yeah, there are worse ways. There are worse, worse, ways, to are worse yeah. ways to go for for sure. Uh, two things I want to talk about before we end up. Um, you know, you also include <laughs> what I think is like the anti-apocalypse, and that's Chicken Little. You talk about Chicken Little. You know, oh, yeah, because yeah. in so some ways that's about someone panicking which happens when people think the world's ending and it's not really mm -hmm. uh but this is this is i think a great tale of it's a it's you know it's a it's a warning a cautionary tale of what to do and why not to panic because people will take advantage of you uh i'm glad you included it like this is some of the levity i think that's that, that this book needs uh but so why did you stick this in there i mean i love it i'm glad you did it but most people wouldn't have included chicken little uh, well, so if I'm going to include uh, lots of different cultural stories about uh, the end of the world, so everything about how we thought the world was going to end, and it just it fit perfectly because all of these stories of hysteria, and then this uh, you know this this cultural fable really that existed in a bunch of different cultures around the world in different ways. Mm -hmm. It wasn't always a chicken, but it was usually with animals, and they sort of go one after another, and then at the end. Um, they either get told by uh, a brave and courageous hero that, no, uh, you need to be informed and make your own decisions and not listen to what everyone tells you or get scared by some sound you hear in the forest. Right. Um, or they get uh, devoured by the wolf, mm -hmm. the big bad wolf Spoiler that uh, comes in. Yep. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, so with, with the morals and everything, it just, uh, it just made sense to include it. And so, so many of the stories are about hysteria and the silliness of, of people to fall for things. So it was just a, a good fit. Yeah, it's great. It's it's really funny. And it's a great way to kind of sum up a lot of what you talk about and things that have happened in the past, you know. Um, some of the things I think in the future are, are a little more serious. I think the sky might actually fall. Um, but there is one, I want to end on one prophecy where the sky does fall at the end. Uh, and that's the Hopi prophecies. I thought this was really insightful. And if I if I can just summarize it, because I thought it's it's also um, uh, it, it's it's beautifully written, you know, and the Hopi old Hopi lore says that the end of the world will start when white skinned men strike enemies with thunder. The land will be crossed with snakes of iron. Uh, it will be entangled in a spider's web and then covered in rivers of stone and a great interpretation. Thunder, guns, uh, snakes of iron, the railroads. Spiderweb, our electrical grid, and rivers of stone, all of the, um, the our highway system. And I think there is a lot, even, you know, even if they never said that, even if that wasn't a prophecy, there is so much wisdom in all of that because, you know, there is plenty, a, a road literally cuts off two ecosystems from each other and creates a dangerous crossing. You know, there's some, um, you know, uh, I forget where this is, but there's turtles that that have to lay their eggs. They have to cross a, a, a road in order to lay to spawn, and many of them get crushed on the road. And so, I mean, talk about a population dip, right? But man has has now brought and introduced that obstacle, 
And, you know, that's the effect that we have on other life. That's one example. And every single example here tells you of a way that we are destroying our own land. And I, I just thought there's a, I, I don't know. I love this. I don't know what you thought about it, you know, um, but. No, I thought exactly that. I mean, I was reading it and it's so beautifully told mm-hmm. uh, this Hopi mythology, this Native American tale. Um, and like you said, you know, I got disappointed at the end. I'm looking everywhere. I'm like, can we, can we prove <laughs> yeah. that they, that they said this yeah. before and everything was just like, it's a, it's a great story, but maybe, uh, you know, there's, there's no proof that they said this before, uh, you know, yeah. all of this happened. They were like, no, no, no. Um, so I, nevertheless, it's, it's a, a great way to look at, uh, what has happened over the last few hundred years. Um, and like you said, you know, the, the roads and the snakes of iron, the train tracks and, um, the spider webs of, you know, of electrical wires and how much it's really changed the environment around us and affected nature and animals. Mm-hmm. But, and theirs ended with a blue star oh. falling from the sky right. and then everything goes dark. So it's, it's also called like the blue star, uh, apocalypse or something. So it, it and so they have all of these, these lists of checklists yeah. of things that happen once the white man comes yeah. and then uh the blue star which they think is supposed to be interpreted by a space station man-made space station that comes and falls and wipes us out or something you know i'm glad you mentioned that because my segue was chicken little sky falling and i knew that was the end and then i got so i got oh, okay. so entranced by the <laughs> by the literary beauty that i forgot the end so thank you. how appropriate at the end of this interview, I forget the end of the story uh, as we discuss the end in general. But I think, you know, uh, you know, just in closing, I, what I love about that is it's kind of the, the, the you know, what I've kind of uh, is my observation of humans throughout we've talked about through this interview is that we are so arrogant and we think we are above everything. And it's simple um, self-awareness that as a species, if we could just become self-aware that we are a part of everything and that we are shepherds, we are not uh, dictators and landlords. Um, if we somehow could figure that out, we can get out of this. I just don't think we are going to figure that out. I think, I, just, I don't, that is, that's where I get dark. I don't think we're going to figure it out. I think it's there, and I think that that's, you know, yeah. kind of the poetry of, of a tragedy, right? Is any tragic story is that, the, the the hero, the tragic hero, has everything that they need to get out of the problem that they're in. They just can't do it uh, for some reason. And that's the beauty of artistic tragedies. And unfortunately, I think that that's going to be the tragic beauty of the human race. Um, but before that happens, um, where can people find you? Where can, <laughs> where can people learn more, uh, find your book, find your beautiful, fill their homes with your beautiful artwork uh, before it's destroyed in either uh, by too many people looting their house or a gigantic volcano exploding or a solar flare turning off the light so they can't see it. So where can people find you and, and get all this stuff? I think that was uh, really well put. And uh, even though you, you know you're a big believer that it's all going to end soon, I think uh, I think you still put it in a way that uh, that I feel okay about it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Come to terms with it. Um, uh, yeah, uh, the the book is available in stores and online, um, and uh, and I am also online. I have a website and an Instagram. So let's get those. What is what's the website? Uh, DRLPerkins.com. Uh, my Instagram is Sturdy Prince. Sturdy. <laughs> I love that. I'm the Funk Lord, so Sturdy Prince is is a close second. Uh, nice. Can people can people find your prints? You know, if someone wants one, can you can you ink them up and stamp a unique uh, version of them and send them out? Yes, uh, I mean I have the physical prints from the book and others, uh, but uh, I, it's it's difficult with shipping in mm. the UAE. Yeah. Um, so I don't have like a set, uh, web store oh. or anything, but people can order through contact. Oh, that's a shame. Cause the, uh, it's beautiful artwork, beautiful artwork. Um, well, so if, you, right, if you've got, yeah. if you've got one that you like, let me know. Oh, you, you, you're darn right. So let's still hang on while, okay. while we talk about that. Oh. Uh, but of course I'll put all this stuff on the website so people can find it easily. Uh, and the website's easy to get a hold of. It's fascinatingnouns.com. And I, of course, am on the web as well. Fascinating noun on X, formerly Twitter, fascinating nouns on Facebook. Uh, so that's where you can find me. You can find Daryl and you got to find Daryl because the end is coming soon and you might not be able to find any of us for much longer. Uh, but again, you know, uh, this is a great book. I think you did a wonderful job and truly 
the art uh, in some ways, uh, it, it doesn't overshadow the, the, the text, but I, I buy this book as an art book. I mean, it's it's great. I, I you know, I, I'm I am serious. It's really cool stuff right up my alley. So for those out there, pick it up, man. It'll for, give for you the other. something to talk about at dinner parties. Yeah, ex- and hopefully not. <laughs> won't be too much of a downer at dinner parties. Exactly. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but thank you for uh, for being on the show and for doing all this research. Daniel, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. You got it. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is, once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.